Hi, I'm Laura, and this is the Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. We're starting another year with inequality gaping. Over the last decade, the median net worth of the top 10 billionaires in the world has nearly tripled. In fact, all but two of the top 10 are centi-billionaires. It's inconceivable to most Americans who are for the first time earning less than their parents. Economic mobility is on the decline, but that doesn't stop the entertainment industry, which continues to serve up American dream rags to riches stories. And no company does that more energetically than Disney. When the granddaughter of one of the founders of that company received an invitation from a Disney employee to look into the quality of life for workers at Disney's flagship theme park, Disneyland, Abigail Disney found that some cast members, as they're called, were earning one two-thousandth of the earnings of CEO Bob Iger. Working full-time, they were barely getting by. She thought that was wrong. She wrote to Iger. She testified in Congress. And ultimately, she did what she does. She made a film. The result is a very personal documentary, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, which calls out inequality and the policies and values that create it, not just at Disney, but across the business world. Abby Disney is an Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, an activist with the patriotic millionaires, and the granddaughter of Roy Disney, who co-founded the company with Walt. The film, co-directed with Kathleen Hughes, is available for streaming now. And I am so happy to welcome Abigail Disney to our screens. Thank you. I really, really appreciate that. It must be quite something to be a Disney in this world. If the only word for it is weird, if you're looking for Mickey, it turns out he is absolutely everywhere. And, and if he's attached to your last name, then you just can't lose him. Have you always had a sense of kind of corporate responsibility or responsibility around the name? Um, yes, I always have had a sense. I think, you know, when, when we were very young, we used to go, you know, to the park, as we called it, by, with my grandfather or with my parents. And usually there was an occasion that we were going there for, like the, a parade was starting or, or the small world ride was opening. That's one of my best memories. And so we would be dressed to the nines and uh, we would be on our very best behavior. And um, and so I think the place we we were always aware that we had a special relationship to this place and that everybody else really loved it. And um, and then, you know, as I got older, I got interested in other people's responsibilities and corp other corporations and other things going on. And, kind of left some space between myself and the company in terms of my um, activism and my thinking about social justice. But I kind of couldn't stay away from it forever because it was just this gaping, you know, problem in the center of everything. In 2018 is really when things took a shift. What happened? There had been a series of stories, um, as there very often are, about workers at Disneyland not being well treated, but it had really um, started to pop up much more often. And so I had allowed myself to kind of not really look um, at the problem for a long time. Um, I figured, you know, that wasn't my job. <laughs> I would do other things. But uh, then I got this very direct message from a, a worker at Disneyland on Facebook. 
And I actually never look at Facebook messages. I have no idea why I looked at this message. But once I'd read it, you know, it kind of felt like I couldn't unread it. And I couldn't unbe in relationship suddenly with this individual person. And when it became personal, then I just felt like I needed to follow what my um, sense of responsibility was telling me to do, which was to go out there and, and talk to people. Well, to give you a taste, here's the trailer from the film The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, co-directed by my guest, Abigail Disney, with Kathleen Hughes. It was released in early 22 and is available for streaming now. Disneyland was not like anywhere else on Earth. When I started working at the park, the employees were so happy to be there. The company appreciated you. At least it did. Having the last name Disney is like having a weird superpower you didn't ask for. But then one day, I got a message from a guy named Ralph who worked at Disneyland. How many of you know somebody who works at Disney who slept in their car in the last oh. couple of years? How many of you know somebody who have gone without medical care oh. because they can't afford it? <laughs> The American dream teaches us that if you work hard enough, anything is possible. It's magical thinking. Dr. Disney. Disney could raise the salaries of all of its workers to a living wage. It was possible to do this when my great uncle and grandfather built the company. It's possible now. That is socialism. We know what that is. People who do the pixie dust tonight, you scrub the kitchens, the floor, the toilets. With both of us working full time, we still fall below poverty level. A custodian would have to work for 2,000 years to make what Bob Iger makes in one. The Disney company is ground zero of the widening inequality in America. Well, what was so striking, and you see it in the film, is the love so many of those employees have or had or kind of want to have um, to the whole Disney brand and their experience. That part of it was super moving, I thought. I think it's really moving. And it's one of my favorite things about the company, although it's also, it's deeply painful to talk about, to be honest, because I also know that that's one of the reasons that the company gets away with paying people so poorly, that they kind of use that as a way of keep stringing people on and 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 promising people better things later if they will only try hard enough. You found that many of the workers, including the guy who wrote to you, Ralph, were barely getting by. So you go off on an investigation as to how did things get to be this way? And would I be right in saying that you began with a sense that it wasn't like that in your grandfather's time? Yeah, and and I I remember my grandfather. I'm, I'm you know, and and we all you know maybe not all of us, but many of us look up to our grandfathers and admire them and think of them as these perfect people. My grandfather definitely had his flaws, but but he was a decent person, and uh, he really 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 cared about individual people. He cared. I think this is where I got it from. He cared about the person he was interacting with, not the position that person held. And so he didn't really value, you know, the CEO any more highly than he valued somebody who was sweeping the sidewalk. And, and that was a value that he instilled in people who worked for the company. That was why he always picked up garbage when, when he was in the park. And he 
um, felt really strongly that that running a company was about taking care of the people around you. You know, that's rank paternalism. I recognize that. Um, but it's better than the soulless uh, kind of treating people like cogs in a machine that we have now. What did you find that change to have been caused by? There was a conscious movement afoot in the 70s and 80s among a certain kind of corporate interest, um, namely the, the managements and the boards and the kind of the ruling class of, of corporate America. They wanted to change the way we understood corporations and their role in public life and where individuals fit into the picture around corporations. And they were people who genuinely believed America, America's mo best and most important interest was their corporate um, community. They wanted to change America into a place where people put the corporation ahead of themselves, people put themselves ahead of others. And so there are still a handful of companies that operate in the way that my grandfather operated Disney, um, but they are in the minority. And what happens is even when they last and even when they survive in the context of this incredibly cutthroat environment, they'll get bought up by a private equity company eventually or exited by their owners in some way. I had a chance to interview Heather McGee about the Some of Us not so long ago. She talks about the role that race played in all of this and what it was that shifted things in the 1960s when we went from a period perhaps in the 30s where government was expanding opportunity for the white working class to a period where government was actually trying to enforce civil rights laws and um, maybe shift the status quo a bit to become more inclusive of women and people of color and immigrants. Race is the American Achilles heel. It has always been the Achilles heel. And one of the things that Heather talks about in that book that is so important is that we were all vulnerable. This hearty, healthy economy that, that my grandfather thrived in, which had a more collective spirit and which was more fair-minded about how it treated people, also had this fatal characteristic, which was that it tolerated the oppression and suppression of large swaths of the American public. It, it abided a level of cruelty and heartlessness. And so when the cruelty and the heartlessness started to grow like a virus inside of the body politic, um, there was no stopping it because there was always such a high tolerance for cruelty. So what she says in the film that's really important is what's happening for white Americans isn't new. They are living the reality that black and brown Americans have lived all along. And if we had cared about their well-being, um, we, we might have been better equipped to fight this challenge that came from above. This is The Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. My guest is Abigail Disney. She's an Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, philanthropist, activist, and the host of the podcast All Ears with Abigail Disney. Her most recent documentary is The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, produced by Fork Films, a company she and Jeannie Vritica founded. The documentary calls out inequality and the policies and values that create it across the business world these days, and it's the subject of today's show. Next, we delve into what the shift was that led to the diminishing power of workers in the U.S. in the late 20th century, how race has played a role in shifting the status quo, and more. 
head to our archives at lauraflanders.org for more of our reporting on change makers and forward thinkers creating the solutions of tomorrow today. This show airs on public television and community radio stations across the country and as a free podcast. All the details on the stations carrying the show and how to subscribe are at lauraflanders.org. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter while you're there to receive information on all our web exclusives including the full uncut conversation from today and every week's show. Stay tuned as my conversation continues with Abigail Disney, granddaughter of the co-founder of the company. But first, here's Black Froze, Black Gold, All You Zombies Dig the Luminosity by Burnt Sugar. The orchestra chamber from their 20th anniversary mixtapes, Greatest Skiznets, Volume 3. Terrain, Alpha Centauri, seriously, dig the luminosity, 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 seriously, dig the luminosity. I'm luminous, I'm numerous, your world is my potential, I'm the first, I'm luminous. point is so important that it wasn't just that the generation of your grandfather and his brother was kindler, gentler. As you say, maybe the ethos was different. The culture was a bit different. Maybe what came before them was more familiar to them. Um, uh, and, and they were following a, a tradition in a sense. But it was also the fact that government was keeping people in check along with unions. And, um, the unions played a huge role in all of this, as they are playing today. But the power of unions has shrunk tremendously. So we have something like 6% of private employ- private industry workers unionized, um, way down from where it was even when you and I were born. Talk about how that then enabled these corporations to get government off their backs when it comes to everything you're talking about? You know, I think that the assault on the union movement was a very thoughtful, um, strategic move. And if you remember Ronald Reagan's election, he ran in support of the air traffic controllers, actually. He made public statements during his campaign supporting the air traffic controllers. But in February after his inauguration, so less than a month, after he was inaugurated, he did one of the most famous things he did, which was to fire the entire union. And he didn't just fire the entire union. He made it so that nobody in that union could ever hold a government job again. Um, So he didn't just crush that union. He destroyed everyone in it. And it was important that he do it that way. And there there are letters, if you read, um, I think it's Kim Fine's book, um, The Invisible Hands, she quotes a CEO in a letter saying, oh, we all knew that was a message. We all knew what Ronald Reagan was trying to communicate to us when he did that. It was a green light to go after unions and that government wouldn't be representing their interests anymore. And it destroyed the collective spirit. It destroyed the idea that when you show up for work, you show up for work shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of other people who are your peers who who have a shared interest with you and that therefore 
collective bargaining was the best way for you to represent your own interests in the workplace. So it splintered everyone. And absent collective bargaining, we are all subject to the tender mercies of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Collective bargaining is the only way workers have to, to uh, democratically uh, represent their own interests in the workplace. Isn't what we're talking about just capitalism, the great unspoken word? No, no, actually. And even if you if you resurrected Adam Smith today, he would look at what we have and say, my goodness, what have you done? <laughs> it, it's the it's the difference between a religion and the fundamentalist version of that religion. And the fundamentalist version of anything is a clinging to a handful of tenets and precepts at the expense of the spirit um of the thing that you are that you're supporting and so we we live under a regime of fundamentalist masculinity frankly we live under a regime of fundamentalist capitalism and so what got drained out of capitalism and even milton friedman this the patron saint of this form of capitalism himself said within reason um within the confines of public mores and values and so we we just kind of raced to the other side of the pendulum. Um, and not that what we had before was, you know, all the way out at nine o'clock, you know, but we're over here at three. And um, and and what is holding it here is, a, you know, a now very moneyed class. And now that Citizens United, you know, such an investment in, in taking off all the guardrails on how money could play a role in politics has caused all this money and these money interests to flood into the space to now protect their already substantial advantages. So the question is, what do we do about it? I mean, you and I may disagree about how capitalism functions. I, I read most of that Thomas Piketty book, and it seemed to suggest that this is inevitable, that with incremental growth, or rather really exponential growth, um, you are going to get these huge disparities between rich and poor. We're there now with this huge portion of all global wealth in the hands of basically a handful of people. Yeah. Is it shiftable? I mean, what can we do? Well, I mean, I, the, I think that the first thing that has to happen is we have to find a way to get money out of politics. And I, that sounds like an impossible task, except that we still have the somewhat of a democracy in place. Um, we still find politicians like Bernie Sanders succeeding by raising money from lots and lots of individuals who give a little instead of a handful of individuals who give a lot. And as long as we still have the shreds of that democracy, we still have a hope of, for instance, passing laws to protect us from the Citizens United decision and constraining money in politics. Citizens United, the Supreme Court decision that took all limits off campaign financing in the name of corporate free speech. Thomas Piketty is right. You know, what he says is, if you predicate your central social enterprise around the idea that there must be year over year growth ad infinitum, then you are eventually going to reach a limit that can't be sustained. Um, but but the, the growth rate that we've been insisting on over the last 30 years or so has been in the six and seven and 12 and 14%. Um, and that's a, a, a highway to hell for everybody ultimately. But a 2% growth rate, you know, uh, can be accommodated over the long term if you have a healthy, vigorous government pushing back over time 
on the excesses and on the ways in which that growth rate is eating into our basic fundamental resources and rights. I remember talking to venture capitalist Nick Hanauer, who I think you know also, who um, said soon after the financial crash that he thought, you know, the rich should watch out, that there were going to be people coming with pitchforks uh, because the way things were going wasn't good for the social fabric, wasn't good for the environment, uh, wasn't good for any of it. Um, I haven't seen those pitchforks, but I have seen a few more labor strikes than ever, a huge spike in labor activity in 2022. Where do you see signs of hope? Well, first of all, there have been pitchforks and they were there on January 6th, right? So they I guess were, those weren't the ones I was thinking of. Yes, they, but they were pitchforks with um, an analysis that had misdirected their energies. But what they have fundamentally over there on the far right wing is an anti-corporate analysis. And when Ron DeSantis pushed back on Disney and talked about, well, when you hear about woke capitalism, that is the sound of their anti-corporate ethos because they know they can't hold people forever unless they speak up about what is so plainly happening to their own people, right? So, so they have used and misdirected the anti-corporate impulse that is a fundamental populist impulse, right? To and, and set us against each other and set us against the government in all sorts of ways. And on top of it, they armed us up um, and they and they highly destabilized every nook and cranny of American culture right now. So, so it was never gonna be as straightforward as a bunch of pitchforks in front of the castle. The real problem, the persistent problem is wealth inequality. And, and that starts with, for instance, the way wealth is taxed. I own, that's what I do for money is own. I sit on my couch owning things. And you know, people show up for work every day and pay a higher effective tax rate on the money that comes into them because they work than I pay on the money that comes to me because I sit on my couch and own. So, so that's a very fundamental um, failure of applying our moral systems and our basic shared values to the tax code. And a tax code is an expression of norms and values. It's nothing else but that. So we really need to elect people who will fight to help empower the IRS to actually collect the taxes um, that are owed them, first of all, because you're more likely to be audited if you're low income than if you have a lot of money. So let's start auditing some of the people who are making a game out of evading taxes. Let's change the code so it, it tax work at a more favorable rate than ownership. And, and let's think about a, a wealth tax. I think the wealth tax is the only way we're actually gonna make a difference. And then a high, high, high um, income tax at the top bracket, a, like a, one that discourages you from wanting to make $2 million a year because nobody needs $2 million a year. So a, a punitive top end. My grandfather became a very wealthy man paying upwards of 70 to 75% on his income. Bernie Sanders said that he ran on, well, among other things, there should be no billionaires. I agree, because uh, honestly, if you can't live on $999 million, you've got so many bigger <laughs> problems than that last million dollars. Honestly, if you really stop to consider what a billion dollars is, it is just a, a sickening amount of money. Were you ever inclined, as I watched your interviewing these folks, did it ever feel to you that you should just give them your money? Yes, of course. Of course. I feel that every day. And I've felt that every day since I was very young. Um, and I have struggled with that for a long time. As I got deeper and deeper into my activism, my philanthropy and my thinking about this, it came to me that, you know, what I have 
is a drop in the bucket as compared to what needs to happen. And I could help a lot of individual people over the short term or even over their lifetimes, I could do that. Um, but I but I wouldn't change anything. And, and so there would just be other people who would flood into the space that they had vacated by rising on the ladder. And I'm worried about the 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 spot at the bottom of the ladder, which is which is filled with people who will never have a chance to rise. Like I, if I don't use my resources to change the the circumstances, the values, um, and the structures that led me to have these kinds of advantages, then I then I've wasted it. This isn't just a Disney story. It's the story of nearly half of American workers who can't make ends meet. I have this passion growing within me now, building power for working class people like me. If you could tell Disney anything, what would you tell them? We'd like to be able to have a home. If you call Amer the American dream, the idea that you can rise from rags to riches, that there's mobility in our economy, um, a fantasy tale, as you do in the top of the film, I don't know whether you go so far as to say the dream is dead, but it does leave me wondering what would be a dream worthy of this century, worthy of the 21st century, knowing all that we know about what, as you mentioned, this endless pursuit of individual wealth and um, growth has where it's brought us. We used to share a dream about shared accomplishment, shared success, shared well-being. That dream has always been there under the surface. We need to empower the people who believe in that dream. We need to bring them into leadership and we, we need to readjust the American mind, which has been kind of poisoned with fantasies about rising. If Disney were to say our value is not just the profits that come to our shareholders, um, but but how our our people are treated, our effect on the environment, our effect on the American imagination, and they they in some ways do that very well. That last part, um, th there are so many companies that would follow them because I really believe that if you could turn one company, um, especially a company like Disney, you could really make visible what's possible. Abby Disney, thank you so much for your work, for your film. You also host a podcast. I encourage people to check it out. All ears with Abigail Disney. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you too. Family, tradition, history, custom. It's all very hard to go up against. And a whole lot of people have been punished for doing exactly that. I think anxieties about losing traditions are behind a lot of people's anxieties these days about change. But at the same time, a whole lot of change-making is happening precisely because people have started grappling with the histories that led them to this point. A friend of mine, for example, recently inherited some land from a racist grandfather, which she decided to give back to the Native American nation from which it had been stolen centuries back. In so doing, did she run up against some disregard, some resentment, anger in her family? Sure. But she also enriched her own life enormously through the new relationships she's gained as a result.
Abby Disney looked at her family history and took what she liked to use against what she didn't, lifted up a part of her family history to challenge the present. And maybe we can all do that. Look closely enough, and there are probably parts of your family history that do represent the values you want to enliven today. I know those exist in my life. There are bits I like, bits I don't like. So how about we thought of biography less as Bible and more as buffet? Take what you like, leave the rest, feel good about the most of it. For more information on this week's show, check out our show notes posted at patreon.com forward slash the LF show. That's where you'll find links to related articles and past episodes from our archives to explore and an invitation to watch the premiere of each week's show on our YouTube channel and chat live in real time with me, Laura Flanders, Sundays at 1130 a.m. Eastern. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button for our YouTube channel if you haven't, and subscribe to that podcast. And if you are a subscriber via Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to write a review and rate the show. It helps to spread the word. In times like these, when social media platforms are reducing the reach of independent media like ours, the act of subscribing and engaging and reviewing with likes and comments is even more important than ever. Tip the algorithms our way. We are up against it. Meanwhile, my crew and I always love to hear from you. We're member-supported, and that means interdependent media. It's a beautiful thing, but we do need you. We don't take money from government or corporations, so you're the fuel in our tank, and no one more so than our Patreon monthly members. Become a monthly sustaining member at patreon.com forward slash the LF show and join the crew that keep this show alive month after month. You'll get extras and all sorts of special gifts from us to thank you. But mostly, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're doing your bit. So how about it? We can only do it with your help. Thanks for listening. This show is produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, along with Sabrina Artel, Nat Needham, David Newman, Rory O'Connor, Alicia Duque, Jeanette Hernandez, and Jeannie Hopper. Major funding for this program is provided by the Novo Park, Ellen Poss Family, Hisuku Wilson Foundations, the Schumann Media Center, Rising Fund at Tides, Kim Connor and Nick Groombridge, Jane Fonda, and listeners like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for contributing. Thanks for your ideas. Stay kind. Stay curious. Until the next time, I'm Laura. <laughs>